when you got up this morning on Mother's Day and you thought about coming to church, raise your hand if you thought you'd be listening to Jimi Hendrix. Ah, no. Some, some did in the last hour, but they were liars. So. Uh, okay. If you're a music buff, you are utterly delighted. Uh, I would say you'd have to be over 50 to appreciate it, but everybody that asked questions of was under 30 that answered them. So those were songs, believe it or not, from the late 1960s when they were written. The first one uh, was written by, raise your hand if you know, or say it, Larry Norman. That's right, Larry Norman. He was a prolific early uh, contemporary Christian songwriter. He also had wrote some rock and roll and uh, later recorded by DC Talk, who you just heard sing it. The second one, probably more of you recognize, unfortunately. Uh, who wrote it? Wow. Okay. Bob Dylan. We live in Fayetteville. And uh, that was written in 1967, later recorded by who? Who's just sang it? Jimi Hendrix. All right. The songs, you may not have, especially the second song, you probably didn't realize this, depicts scenes and imagery used by Jewish prophets. That's where Dylan got his material. And historians writing over a thousand year plus period of time. These men wrote and spoke prophetically. And by the way, when they were writing these words that they said came from God about the so-called second coming or the day of the Lord or the return of the king or the return of, or the coming of the son of man, they had no idea that their words would be written down in a way that 2,500, 3,000 years or so later, people would still be talking about them because they'd be put in a book called the Bible. They didn't know that. And they couldn't have known what others were saying before or after them, in most cases, at least. So we're going to look closer this morning at some of that biblical imagery about the return of the king, or particularly as the Old Testament prophets wrote, the day of the Lord. The Old Testament Jews who lived during Christ's time and before Christ's first coming believed that according to the Old Testament passages, such as the book of Joel, that the day of the Lord was a time of terrible judgment, a judgment of fire and destruction upon the earth, when God would judge and punish evil and evildoers. That was accurate to the extent they understood it. God will deal with sin and the devil someday when he returns. His sense of justice requires it. That's not a popular concept in modern 21st century enlightened culture, but it's a fact. It's just truth. And when you bump up against truth, you have to adjust your own thinking. Truth doesn't conform to your beliefs. But that's only part of the story. The New Testament writers and speakers, namely Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John, wanted the first century Christians and those living toward the end of the church age, that's you and I, to understand that if we love Jesus and really know him personally, if we've embraced him by faith, if we're seeking to live out his ethos among our sphere of influence, as we talked about a few weeks ago, and if we're longing for his return, it is a love story, then we don't need to fear the Lord's return. Lee talked briefly last week about the various views of the events leading up to and surrounding Christ's return. Many people have spent their lives studying what's called end times theology or eschatology. There's all kinds of views based on all these prophetic teachings about exactly what the times and the seasons will look like. Will the church be raptured well before Christ's return? 
or will that happen simultaneously with his return? Theologians and Bible scholars disagree about that and many other things, but there were some things that Jesus wanted to just to be clear about in relation to his return, and particularly and most importantly, attitudes and behaviors that he wants us to exhibit. He wanted those first century Christians to exhibit, and he wants 21st century Christians, excuse me, 21st century Christians to embrace in light of what I've called the reality of his second coming or his return. He wants us, those that know him, I mean, this is going to be a long statement, but bear with me, and, and we're going to repeat these thoughts over and over throughout the morning because that's the most important part for us is how do we live in light of the reality of his return. He wants us, first of all, to stay spiritually awake, as Peter said, and as Paul is writing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, my assigned text this morning, aware that we have an enemy who opposes us and seeks to destroy us. And 21st century, particularly evangelical Christians in the West, struggle with the concept of spiritual warfare and supernatural realities. This is a supernatural faith. I say that a lot, but I have to remind American Christians of this. There are spirit beings in this room this morning that you can't see. They're interacting with us constantly. Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle daily with forces we can't see. And they're opposed, they're organized, they're disciplined. And they have an objective to steal, kill, destroy, and minimize your influence. And they're hell-bent on your destruction. And we need to be aware of that constantly. We were born, we sleep in, we live in, we breathe in, we play in, we work in, we interact in on a battlefield, and we'll die on that battlefield. That's a reality, and we need to be aware of that. We need to be spiritually awake. Investing the resources of our life, I like to call it our time, our talent, our possessions, and our influence, in what matters to him. That's what he's calling for throughout the New Testament. He's calling for that again today. Investing those things in people he came to save. Participating with his powerful Holy Spirit in resisting gems and your sin tendencies and my sin nature and the influence of what I'll call worldliness on me and you that seeks to squeeze us into this world's mold as we live life seeking to bring his kingdom to earth as he prayed for in the Lord's prayer by doing good and by being salt and light in our spheres of influence our culture and most importantly above all of that the first commandment, by daily seeking to deepen our love relationship with him above all of it, falling more and more in love with him daily, longing to be fully with him, as you're going to hear the writers of the New Testament cry out, and living with an expectant longing for his return. That's what the point of all this second time's talk, second coming talk is this morning. So with all that backdrop in mind, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, or you can look on the screen if you don't. And I'm going to break down just for a few minutes that passage of Scripture and lightly exposit it, and we'll talk more about it and some other passages. Paul, writing probably his first letter, his first so-called church epistle, to a church of people 
that he dearly loved in a very cosmopolitan town again, a very worldly town in the Roman Empire in Greece, in Macedonia, called Thessalonica. And this is what he says to the little band of believers in Thessalonica. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write you, for we know very well, you know very well, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, the critical thinking in me when I read verses like that says, wait a minute, they don't have the New Testament. It ain't even written yet, much less codified. How would they know that? Well, Paul spent a little time with them before he left, and now he's writing letters back to them, and he quoted Jesus. We're going to see some of Jesus' teachings on this. Jesus said numerous times things like that, that he would come back like a thief in the night, and that the day of the Lord, what it would look like. So Paul had conveyed what Jesus had said. What is the Great Commission anyway? Go and make disciples by baptizing and teaching. Well, whose teachings? Jesus' teachings to other people. And so he had done some of that. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. There's already been two metaphors and we're just down to verse 3. First one's thief in the night. The second one's a pregnant woman and labor pains. Did Paul make it up? No, both of those came from Jesus' teachings. He described his second coming, and he described some of the signs of his second coming as labor pains, but the point was there's a baby coming, and I'm coming back. That's the metaphor. But you brothers are not in darkness. What kind of darkness? He's talking about two kinds of darkness. Bad moral behavior and spiritual unenlightenment, we'll call it. So this day should surprise you like a thief. There's the metaphor again. You're all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. Again, he's going to transition now to talk about the main point. Here's how you ought to be living in the 21st century, in the first century, in light of the reality that judgment day is coming, that the return of the king is imminent. Here's how you ought to be living. Alert. Not asleep, verse 6. Let us not be like others who are asleep, but alert, spiritually aware, and self-controlled. You're going to see that phrase twice in these 11 verses. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, remember? Self-discipline. We don't like to think about that. It doesn't sound as good as love, faith, hope, even kindness and gentleness. Self-discipline requires me to do something, to resist sin tendencies in my life to discipline myself, to be organized, to be structured. And some of you are more attuned toward it than some of us are. But regardless, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And he's calling for it here. It's part of a holy lifestyle. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Now he just talks about one form of immorality, drunkenness. There's all kinds of other things that he could delve into, other writers do, but he's contrasting an immoral lifestyle and a moral lifestyle. But since we belong to the day, let us be, again, here's the word, or here's the phrase, self-control. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate. He loves huge imagery of a warrior, like Ephesians chapter 6, where he talks about spiritual warfare, and he describes the armor of God. And don't get caught up in which piece is for this and which piece for all that. The point is, put on all these things and recognize you're in a battle and you've got to fight. Put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Wrath in this context means judgment. 
when he comes back, but to receive salvation. In this context, this means deliverance from judgment through our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, again. 2,000 years ago or so, God, in fulfillment of a script that he wrote long, long ago with his son, did what he knew he would require of him when he wrote the law that required the blood of his perfect sacrifice to atone, to appease, to redeem, to pay for humanity's moral failure that began in the garden. He came to earth as Mary's baby boy, grew up for about 30 years as a carpenter's apprentice. Then at about age 30, he came out as a Jewish rabbi. For about three to four years, he had an incredible ministry, powerful teaching Powerful miracles demonstrating his deity. Then he became the sin sacrifice, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundations of the world. And he offered himself up as an appeasement to God. And God poured out all of the wrath of sin on him. And he paid for the sins of anyone who would accept this story by faith and his substitutionary atonement as a penalty for your sin personally at the cross. Then after a few days in a tomb, he came alive again. He was resurrected, stayed here for about 40 days in some kind of supernatural body, then ultimately returned to heaven, sits on the throne, awaiting for the day. The father says to the son, go get your bride. More on that in a few minutes. That's Jewish wedding tradition. We'll break that down in just a few minutes. But that's the gospel in an extended form. When you embrace that by faith, you get this thing called salvation, which begins now that in this context today, we're talking about deliverance from judgment, the final judgment. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that means dead or alive. Lee broke it down last week when he talked about death, those that died in Christ. So whether you're dead when he returns or here alive when he returns, we may live together with him. Therefore, Paul says to his church in Thessalonica, encourage one another. And build each other up, just in fact you're doing. The writer of Hebrews takes it a step further. He says this, apparently in the first century they were already starting to say, well, it's just me and Jesus. I don't need all these other people. They mess up a lot. And, and it hurts me, it causes me pain, fellowshipping with other Christians, because they're just hypocrites. So are you and so are I. So am I. We all fail. And, and, and so the writer of Hebrews says this, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is already, even in the first century, the custom of some, and meet together more and fellowship more as you see the day, this day that we're talking about today, the day of the Lord coming. As we get to the end of this church, it's going to be more important that you hang together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what Paul's telling the Thessalonians even now. More thoughts on the passage. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 shares a truth that I already shared with you just a few minutes ago. 1 Peter 5, 8, verses 8 and 9, Peter says this. Be self-controlled and alert. Same words Paul's using. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to what? Mess you up, trip you up make you look like a fool? No, to devour you. Powerful imagery. Resist him, standing firm in your faith. Moving on, 
Jesus also described, as I've already stated, in Matthew, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you a lot of verses this morning. Some of them will be on the screen, some of them won't. If you've got that little outline that we put out, not all of them are in there. I'm sorry, but I'm really going to give you some evidence this morning for what I'm talking about from Scripture. Matthew 24, 8, and Mark 13, 8. Mark 13, 8 is on the screen. The day of the Lord, Jesus talks about it himself. He describes it as the consummation of labor pains or birth pains. Signs, he said, that give some warning of his sudden coming. We don't have time to break all that down this morning, but he said it, just as Paul describes here. The behavior again, and I'm going to say this again several times, that Jesus is calling for us to exhibit in light of these realities of his return is a well-balanced, disciplined, moral lifestyle. We're to live sacrificially, praying fervently, stuff that Christians have done for 2,000 years. Folks, it still works. It's what he's calling for. Reading the word, sharing our faith and our treasures, our stuff with other people fellowshipping with other Christians, trying to affect our spheres of influence positively, all the while passionately worshiping God and longing for his return. Part of that lifestyle is encouraging and admonishing one another in faith, hope, hope of his return, hope of heaven, and love. Meeting together regularly. One point. I don't know if you want to call it a a trick or whatever you want to call it. I, I, I don't want to accuse God of deceit, but clearly he intended that those first century Christians live as if his return was imminent. Clearly he did. They all wrote that way. We got to acknowledge it, to be intellectually honest. So it must be true in the 21st century that he wants you and I to live as if his return was imminent. And certainly we're closer to his return than they were. More on that in just a few minutes. He wanted them and us to live with an expectation and a hope in mind. Now I'm going to do this. I'm going on a scripture journey. Some of you will love this. Some of you will struggle with it. But I'm going there anyway. That's what I'm supposed to do. Old Testament and New Testament passages about his return of the day of the Lord. Let's start with the concept of the watchman on a wall from the Bob Dylan song or the whole idea of a watchtower, or be alert, or be watchful. I'm going to give you just a few verses. There's a lot of them in the Old and New Testament. Here's some Old Testament verses. You want to check them out later. Micah 7, 4. Ezekiel 33, numerous verses in that chapter. 2, 6, and 7 are examples. Isaiah 21, verses 6 through 8 uses the imagery of watchmen on a wall that protect a city. The watchman is doing several things. He's warning the people in the city of impending trouble that's coming. He's also telling them of important caravans that might be coming their way with important people and or, or people with uh, goods to trade. So Isaiah 8, 21-8 reads this way. And the lookout shouted, Day after day, my Lord, I stand on the watchtower. Every night, I stay at my post. So Dylan was drawing imagery from the Old and New Testament. You probably didn't know that. You're writing that song all along the watchtower. Go check out the rest of the lyrics. Here's one line from it. All along the watchtower, the princes keep their view, or they keep looking out expectantly. Jesus, in Matthew 25, verses 113, 
uses wedding imagery in the story of the ten bridesmaids. Are you familiar with that? That probably is difficult for most of us to understand because we don't know Jewish traditions that day, particularly relating to marriage. I'm going to share that with you. There were, here's the way it looked like. Uh, some of you have heard me do weddings where I've talked a whole lot about uh, the way that a bride and a groom, respective bride and respective groom, would get engaged. It was a family thing. Uh, if you've seen Filler on the Roof, you got a little taste of that. And, and the whole family would be involved in the engagement. The weddings were arranged. It wasn't anything like today in Jewish tradition in Jesus' day and earlier. And, and, but after the couple got engaged and the whole scene that went on, I'm going to tease you a little bit, in that upper room where Jesus is saying, offering that cup and saying, this cup is a covenant, my blood broke for you. That was wedding proposal language. That's why Peter's going, oh, what's going on here? And he changed the words of a traditional Jewish seder to a Jewish wedding language up there in that upper room. And so after a couple was engaged, it usually was a lengthy engagement and was pragmatic because the son usually in most Jewish homes couldn't afford to go build his own house. And so he literally would build a room onto his mother and father's existing home, the groom would, to keep his bride, and they would live there for years. Maybe he would live, build a home nearby. But in their culture, it wasn't the boy, the groom, that got to decide when he went to get his bride. It was the father. Now think about that. Remember what Jesus said? The day and the hour that I'm coming to get my bride knows no man except the father. He doesn't even know it. And it was the father in Jewish wedding tradition that would turn to his son, okay, son, I think the room's ready, and I think you're ready. Let's plan a wedding for tomorrow, three days from now. And then the boys would let the word, the boys, because the, he had a wedding party, just like we happens today, he had groomsmen. And there would be this big three-day party. Remember the first miracle of Jesus was at a wedding party. And they ran out of wine because parties back then, at weddings were a big deal, and the whole town got involved. It lasted for days. And so the boys would literally, when they got word from the father, let information leak out to the girls on the other side of town maybe that they were coming to get them, and they would always steal their bride. That was the tradition at night. It was a real romantic thing. And they would go through town making all kinds of racket, letting the town know the next day there was going to be a big party. And so what's happening here with these bridesmaids, they, they get word that the boys are coming, the groom's coming with his party, but they don't know when during the night he's coming. And some of the girls didn't bring enough oil for their lamps. It's a real simple little illustration Jesus is using to describe what? Be ready. I'm coming back. And, and they didn't have enough oil in their lamps. And so the ones that didn't have enough oil tried to bump some oil off the other ones, and they wouldn't give it to them because they didn't have enough. So they went to get oil, and while they were gone, the wedding party shows up, the boys, and they get left behind. Remember the song? And so Jesus shared that story. So the imagery of a wedding, wedding imagery, that's from, if you want the source on that, a Jewish scholar by the name of Zola Levitt and others break down the whole Jewish wedding tradition and helps you understand a lot of the stories in the New Testament, by the way. 
Here's more imagery. We've talked about it already, the thief in the night. Used by Jesus in Matthew 24, 43, and in Luke 12, 39 through 40, it records Jesus using this imagery to describe his second coming. Let me read to you Luke 12, 39 through 40. Jesus speaking, he's talked at this point a lot about his second coming, and he says this, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be what? Ready. Because the Son of Man, favorite phrase that Jesus uses of himself is Son of Man. That's from the Old Testament prophets, particularly Daniel is one of them that uses that phrase of the Messiah, Son of Man. The Son of Man will come back at an hour when you do not expect him. That phrase, that imagery of a thief in the night is also used by Peter in 2 Peter 3.10. If you're taking notes, you can check that out later. Jesus uses it again in the last book of the Bible, last written book, the book of Revelation, when he appears to John in Revelation 3.3, he says he's coming like a thief in the night. More imagery there from the Old and New Testament about a thief in the night. Jesus describes himself, if you're taking notes, in Matthew 25, next metaphor here, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 26, Mark 13, verses 32 through 37, and Luke 12, 42 through 46, this time as a wealthy owner of a large estate. He does this on more than those occasions, but that's three. And he says he's gone on a long journey, or he's going on a long journey. And he's going to entrust his estate to trusted servants. By the way, that's you and I. And Jesus talks a lot about accountability. And he says someday he'll return and he'll hold the servants, that's you and me, accountable for how we handled whatever portion of his estate he meted out to us. Go back to my thoughts, time, talent, possessions, and influence. He's going to have a conversation with us. Say stuff like, Jim, what'd you do with what I gave you? That's a scary thought, but he wants us to keep that thought in our minds. How did we handle his estate while he was gone? So the imagery, Jesus, as the owner of a large estate that's gone on a journey who will soon return, that's all relates to his second coming of the day of the Lord. Now I'm going to do a timeline with you, if you like timelines. I want to just try to prove to some of you who still doubt the validity and the power of this book and the credibility of it. Let's start with 535 B.C. The year's about 535 B.C. That's five and a half centuries before Jesus shows up. That's 26, 2700 years ago. A guy by the name of Daniel, he's famous for dreams and visions, both having them and interpreting them. And he's having what he calls night visions. And one night he sees in one of his night visions someone he calls the Son of Man coming to earth in the clouds, key phrase. That's the next picture I'm going to paint for you is in the clouds. To take the throne of the world. Let's just read. I'm not going to read all the in the cloud passages, but here's one of them. I'm going to get, share four with you. I'm going to read this one. Daniel, about 26 or 2700 years ago. In my night visions I looked... And there before me was one like a son of man, 
Coming, literally the phrase means riding the clouds of heaven. And he approaches someone called by Daniel, the ancient of days. That's the father. And he's led into his presence. And he's given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all peoples, nations, and men of every language are going to worship him. And his dominion or his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's 535 B.C. Jump forward to about 30 A.D., about 600 years or so later. And I'm going to read to you now what Jesus says in Mark 13, verses 26 and 27. Jesus speaking toward the end of his ministry when he's about to be crucified and offered up as the sin sacrifice. Jesus says this, verses 26 at that 27. At that time, what time? At the second coming of the king. Men will see the Son of Man. Wow, is that a coincidence? He uses that same phrase Daniel used. Coming what? In the clouds, just as Daniel saw. With what? Great power and great glory, just as Daniel prophesied would be the case. And he will send his angels and gather his elect, that's you and I, from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. About two or three years later, maybe just a year or so later, about, say, 31, 34 A.D. I won't turn there. You can look it up. Acts 1, 9 through 11. Two angels... (laughs) are standing with a crowd of people. We don't know how many. And Jesus is leaving earth after 40 days, going back to the throne of the universe to be with his Father. How does he leave? In the clouds. In the clouds. What do the angels say? This Jesus, who you see departing, will come back someday in the exact same way you see him leaving, in the clouds. Three times already you've seen it. Jump forward again to the end of the first century. About 95 A.D., Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. John, who, by the way, John described himself. Love the phrase as the one Jesus loves. That's you and me, by the way. You're the one Jesus loves. So the one Jesus loves It's getting near the end of his life. His journey's nearly over on this planet. And he's having an incredible vision that lasts probably a long time. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And what does he see right off the bat? The Son of Man coming in the clouds. And Jesus says this, every eye will see me. That's what he tells John. And John repeats that back to us. Now that's just a few of the biblical references that talk about the return of Christ as recorded by some of the Old Testament and the New Testament writers and Jesus himself. Now I'm going to go to another passage of Scripture, a parallel passage to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, another writer. And it's particularly relevant to us leaving 2,000 years after Jesus left the earth and returned to heaven. I think it was written for those folks living near the end of the church age because it fits us really, really well. So I don't think it's out of school to picture an old man by the name of Peter writing to us 
at the end of the church age and saying this to a group of people assembled in a gym in northwest Arkansas in 2018. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 3 through 14, or it's on the screen. First of all, you must understand, just picture Peter saying this to us. In the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they'll say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forgot, those folks back there in the ancient world did, that long ago, by God's words, the heavens exist and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And what he's talking about is Noah's time. And he said, it's kind of like you're back there and there's this guy building this boat for a few decades. And it's never rained. And it's never flooded. And you're going, what are you doing? It's going to flood. Judgment's coming. Really? That's just dumb. And then the rains come and the floods destroy the earth and God does a redo. Before he does his next redo, he's given us some signs. And that's what he's talking about here. And Peter's saying, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed in that judgment. And by the same word, the word of God, the present heavens and this earth are reserved for fire. Old Testament and New Testament clear. The next judgment will not be by water, it will be by fire. Being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this, church. One thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So it's just been a couple of days since Jesus left in Jesus' economy. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He's patient with you and I, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Over and over, these images appear. The heavens, he's going to say this multiple times, will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire someday. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Agent of reality, Peter, for us at the end of the church age. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what's the point? What kind of people ought you to be? Well, Jim, you ought to live a holy and godly life. As you look forward expectantly to the day of God and speed its coming. Speed its coming is the thought. There ought to be something in us that's saying expectantly like John's going to cry out in Revelation. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. And the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, his gracious precious promise of salvation we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth the home of righteousness and those declared righteous and justified by a faith in that story I told you earlier about Jesus first coming so then dear friends since you're looking forward to this make every effort to participate with the Holy Spirit of the living God in this process called sanctification to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. That's Peter's words, I believe, written properly to us at the end of the church age. Close with a quick, simple story and one more passage of Scripture. And this is an easy one. All of you will get this. It's Mother's Day. So it's a good thing for me to say this. 
I love my wife. I don't always act like it or treat her right, but she's a wonderful person. If you know her, she's a delightful person. She's very easy to love. When she's gone for any length of time, I really miss her and I long for her return. And quite frankly, those of you who know, I don't function very well, okay? 2004, she went on her first mission trip to a region of China known as Tibet. Some of you have heard some of the wild stories, spooky stories. It was an incredible spiritual adventure. But that's not my point this morning. I'm not going to tell any of those stories. This one's easy. She was gone for a total of 16 days, I know. And that was before the time, hard to believe, of international cell phone service and dependable internet service. I only talked to her one time while she was gone, and I developed during those 16 a deep and desperate longing for her return. So what's the point? Well, my point is this. There's more to this little teaching than to just to put the fear of God in this morning. There's more in all these Bible passages than to just an admonition and even to live soberly and to stay alert and watch for his return. There's a whole lot more to this story than this. This is a love story. It's about a bridegroom longing to be with his bride. It's about a father that's someday going to turn to the son and say, go get your bride. And from our side of the equation, it should be about a bride, a lover, who's falling more and more in love, expectantly, for the day we'll be with Jesus forever. That's the point. That's why I told you that simple little story. So let's close with one more passage of Scripture written by the one who described himself as the one Jesus loves. Remember as we hear it that we too are the ones that Jesus loves. John, he describes himself as in the Spirit on the Sunday, the Lord's Day, toward the end of the first century. Nearing the end of his life, he has this extended vision. Hear John's words and Jesus' words from the last chapter of the Bible, just a few selected verses. First of all, Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13, Jesus speaking in the vision. Behold, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. And then he describes who he is again. And we need to understand this. He's not just Mary's baby boy. He's not just a good moral teacher from about 2,000 years ago. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last and the beginning and the end. Skipping down to verses 16 and 17 next. I, Jesus, John, have sent me my angel to give you this testimony for who? For the churches, that's you and me. He says, I am the root, speaking to John's Jewishness now, and the offspring of David, and I'm the bright and morning star. John described him in other places as the light of the world. And the Spirit, and that Spirit's in this room this morning, that powerful Holy Spirit, and he's still alive and active just like he was in the first century. That Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, is in concert with the bride. That's you and me. And we ought to join and echo this thought. Come, and the, literally the phrase means come and come quickly. And let him who hears say this with the Spirit. Come. 
Now he starts talking to another group of people. And there may be some of these people in the room this morning. So I'm extending this as an invitation. Whoever is thirsty, let him come right now. Not Jesus coming back, but let the person come to Jesus. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, it's a universal offer. Let him take the free gift of the water of life. That's salvation. It's the offer this morning. Skip down to verse 20. He who testifies to these things, John says, he's talking about Jesus, says, yes, I am coming soon. And John closes with, amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The spirit of Daniel's son of man and John's soon coming king, the spirit of the bridegroom is again is in this gym this morning, moving actively, dealing with all of us, I hope. He's calling some of you to repent. Maybe even consider a radical repentance. And I know it won't be easy for some of you. He's calling you to break the change of sin and addiction in your life. But he's calling some of you to wake up and shake off the cobwebs of worldliness and the sin that so easily entangles us. And stop arranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. And start investing your time in stuff that matters. But if you don't know this Jesus personally, the most important thing the Spirit is doing for you is He's calling you to Himself this morning. He's calling you to come and drink from that spring of living water. To embrace Jesus as the lover of your soul. Admit, it's not a popular concept in this culture, admit you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Embrace Him as your Savior and the Lord of your life. Prayer team's going to come up in just a minute and assemble around the room. If you've never done this, or you want to make sure, go, go talk to a prayer team member. And there's a baptistry up here this morning. There were four people, one spontaneously baptized in the last service. We'll take time. It's all here this morning. Everything the first church, first century Christians did are available in this room. Prayer. Communion's available around the room. The baptistry's here. We baptized in the last time. We could do it again. Just come see me or someone else. Any Christian can baptize you, male or female, young or old. If you're a Christ follower, you can baptize someone up here this morning. I'll hold the mic for you, okay, and help you do it. If you want to be baptized by me or someone else, come tell us. I'll offer that to you this morning. We have the opportunity now, and let's take it, to stand and engage Jesus in worship. Don't be ashamed to let, if you have any hair, your hair down and show public displays of affection for God in church. It's okay, all right? It's okay to do that. Prayer team, come on up. Scatter around the room. This is a ministry time. If you want to go minister anyone, go do it. You have permission to do that. Again, let's worship the king right now. Thank you.